Hey, let me ask you, when do you own something? When you've purchased it? No, it actually happens a lot sooner than that. We'll talk about it on today's episode of The Buyer's Mind. Welcome to The Buyer's Mind, where we take a closer look deep inside your customer's decision-making mechanism to reverse engineer the perfect sales presentation. Now, please welcome your host, Jeff Shore. Greetings, everyone. Jeff Shore here, your host of The Buyer's Mind, where we investigate the way that our customers think, the way that they make purchase decisions, because at the end of the day, we want to make it easy for them to do just that. Today, we're going to talk about a really interesting concept called psychological ownership. And we're going to think about it both from the perspective of our customers, but it might be helpful for you to think about it as what this means to you. What does psychological ownership look like to you. So to get us started, let's talk to our show producer, Paul Murphy. Murph, we're going to talk today about psychological ownership. Think of the last time that you test drove a car. At what point did you know you were going to buy it? Well, that is a great question. When did I think I was actually going to buy it? I, you know, the, the minute uh, the, the engine turned over and that thing purred, you you fell in love with it, and uh, <laughs> yeah. it was pr- pretty hard to not say, I want this. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that is the way it works. There's an emotional connection to it. where There's an, oh, yeah, moment <laughs> about that. And this is what happens. It's it, The fact is that we know in our gut before we acknowledge in our head. Um, Paco Wonderhill, when he wrote Why We Buy many years ago, he said, we own something when we try it on or hold it in our hand or drive it or put it in our mouth. Paying for it is a mere formality. It's a great quote. So here's the question. How do you get your customer to own something sooner and to be conscious of that? That's what we're going to get into on today's episode of The Buyer's Mind as we talk to Dr. Colleen Kirk about psychological ownership. Well, as you know, here on The Buyer's Mind, we're always thrilled to to bring on the people who are doing the hard part behind the scenes, trying to figure out how do customers think? How do our consumers make decisions? And and then we bring them onto the podcast to be able to bring clarity and applicability to that. And so I'm thrilled today to have Dr. Colleen Kirk uh, from the New York Institute of Technology. Her research centers around consumer behavior, especially in the areas of psychological ownership, uh, emotions, decision-making, all the things we love to talk about here on The the Buyer's Mind. Uh, She is an accomplished researcher written up in journal after journal after journal. Um, Just an extensive background in product management, marketing, sales. Uh, She knows it all. And I think you're going to love this conversation. Uh, Dr. Kirk, welcome to The Buyer's Mind. Thank you very much, uh, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Uh, although beyond that introduction, I don't know what I'm going to be able to. <laughs> no, no, no. We'll have oh. some fun. We'll have some fun. And and you're joining us from uh, from New York today. Yes, I am. Whereabouts in New York? So our uh, headquarters uh, are we're uh, we have a campus in uh, New York City in Manhattan, and we have a campus on Long Island, and Love I'm it. based in Manhattan. Love it. Okay, so before we get into the core topic, we have to we have to settle a conversation that Murph and I were having offline. Uh, why are the bagels so good in New York? What, what, what is that? I, somebody <laughs> once told me that it's because New York has really really good water. Is that the secret? 
Well, the interesting thing, you know, that is our, my, in my family, that's our general consensus because I live in Croton on Hudson, New York. It's a little town on the Hudson River, about 30 miles north of New York. And we supply the water for New York City. And mm. we have fantastic bagels here in Croton. So that's our, uh, our conclusion. We would agree that it's the water. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. All right. Now, now I'm, boy, now I got a hanker and I'm going to have to hop on a plane and head to Manhattan here. So uh, uh, tell us about your interest in consumer behavior. How did, how did that start? It's, it's such a fascinating business. And once you start to unpeel it just a little bit, uh, it's, it's really easy to dive, um, uh, you know, a couple of miles deep into it. Where, where did your interest originate when it comes to consumer behavior? Well, uh, it is kind of a roundabout way. Uh, my professional background is in marketing and sales in the computer industry. I won't tell you how long ago, and um, but I worked for many, many years in uh, product management and in sales in uh, in the computer business, and uh, so it was mostly B two B marketing and sales. And uh, when I, my kids went off to high school, I went back to school and got my doctorate in uh, marketing. And I took my first consumer behavior class uh, and just absolutely fell in love with it. I just thought it was fascinating that something as simple as a uh, product sitting on a shelf next to a package, a sealed package of toilet paper, could somehow make the consumer feel like there was some potential for contagion there. That was a crazy example, but just <laughs> fascinated with the notion of consumer behavior and how funny we all are. Your initial experience was in sales and marketing. Uh, did you, when you were taking that class, can you remember back to thinking, oh man, how much did I not understand about the way that people make decisions? And how much would this have helped me if I knew this stuff when I was a practitioner uh, in the field? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so much uh, more to understand about the way people think and uh, and uh, even establishing relationships with people. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's such a fascinating, fascinating, fascinating field. And you can dive so deep. So from that point, you looked at and you said, OK, now I know what I want to do with my career, because, uh, listen, you you had a whole career in frontline marketing and sales in the in the computer business uh, before you started to do what you've done. But when I look at the body of work that you've done in the meantime, you've had an, a, a very, very a successful career, a very prolific career. Um, was it at that point where you just looked at it and you said, now I want to do what I know what I want to do. Now I want to, I know where I want to make my mark. Uh, well, yeah, that's, uh, I started, uh, most of my uh, research started off in the technology area and mm -hmm. I did a lot of my research in that area because I still love technology to this day. Yeah. And, um, uh, so, uh, so I study a lot. I've studied a lot of uh, about how consumers interact with technology, uh, and I came to just to come across this field, um, this theory of psychological ownership. Um, uh, really, John Pierce um, uh, from University of Minnesota and Joanne Peck was really the jo Joanne was really the uh, instigator and kind of wrote the seminal paper on uh, psychological ownership in consumer behavior back in two thousand nine. And I read that and um, nobody had applied that to digital behavior, uh, digital consumption yet. And I looked at that and I thought, oh, my gosh, that's what's going on here. I'm starting to feel a sense of ownership of these technologies. So uh, so that's kind of what I've been studying. And then from there, I've explored the whole area of psychological ownership and just had great, great fun with it. 
Give me, give so, us some definition. When when you talk about psychological ownership, I think typically when we think about ownership, we think about uh, more of a transactional ownership, more of a positional ownership. How do you define uh, a psychological ownership? Oh, that's uh, certainly a great question. So the way I like to explain it um, is if you think about, it's very easy if you're a professor to understand psychological ownership, but anybody who's ever sat in a sat classroom can understand it. So if you imagine, you know, you walk into a classroom on your first day of class and you pick a seat and you sit down and, uh, and then, you know, you walk into class the second day of class, where do you sit? Same seat. The same seat. Mm -hmm. And what do you do when you walk in and you see Jane sitting in your uh, the seat that you had the yeah, day before? Right. I'm all for clumped. Yeah. Like, you know, you're probably just you're probably way too polite to say anything. Right. And most of my students are too polite, but they are thinking, you know, mm -hmm. Jane, what are you doing in my seat? So that's a feeling of uh, what we call psychological ownership. You feel like even though the school legally owns that seat, you feel a sense of ownership of that seat. Uh, does it uh, transfer? And by, and by the way, I think there are a lot of salespeople who go to their sales meetings every week and every week the same salespeople are sitting in exactly the same chair. And if somebody moves, oh my goodness, it's just like the, the world stops spinning. That's uh, how could you do this uh, heinous act? Uh, Absolutely. How does uh, uh, psychological ownership uh, affect the way that consumers think uh, about a product? Because uh, is, it, is it just inherent that if I own something transactionally, then I also own it psychologically? Or is there a sense of, can I take an ownership in something, even a brand, long before I own it? Oh, yeah, uh, um, definitely. So the two ideas are can be related, but they don't have to be related. So there are many, many things. If you think of look around your house and you think, uh, you know, you look at somebody's, you know, gifts, maybe that your you know, great aunt Susie gave you that is really meaningless to you. And but you accept that being a nice person, uh, you may not have a great feeling of ownership of that gift. For example, there's probably probably a lot of other things in your house that are in your house and that you legally own, but mm -hmm. you do not have much psychological ownership for. Mm -hmm. Contrast that with something, with some purchase where you really spent a long time making decisions, you did a lot of research on it, and you really developed a, a real feeling like you know this product better than anyone else, or you might have customized it, for example, um, or you went into the store and you really picked it up and you really looked at it and you touched it and you built it in you, with your hands, um, all of these things elicit these, these feelings of, of ownership. So uh, even before you legally buy something, you can have this feeling of ownership or psychological ownership. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I remember reading, uh, I believe it was Paco Underhill, Why We Buy, many, many years ago. And I, I think he made that point. He said, when do we when do we own something? We we tend to think, well, when we pay for it, right? And but we own it when we when we try it on or hold it in our hands or taste it or whatever it is. There's a paying for it actually becomes something of a of a um, formality. So the way that you've described it, then that psychological ownership is an incredibly powerful motivator. If I own something psychologically before I actually buy it, pay for it, commit to a salesperson that I'm going to buy it, uh, if I've got that sense of deep-rooted psychological ownership, the transactional part is actually quite simple. That, that's, that, that last step is not that difficult. Even uh, more fascinating to me, when I first started researching this idea, uh, what fascinating to me was that people are willing to pay more for products that they psychologically own. And my uh, colleague, Joanne Peck, who I mentioned before, um, she and, and uh, Suzanne Shu showed with some research that 
if a consumer picks up or touches or moves a product, simply touching it is enough to elicit this feeling of ownership. And then they will pay, they're willing to pay more for the product. So uh, research has shown this time and again, that if we can elicit feelings of ownership in our customers, uh, they value the product more highly and they're willing to pay more for it because it kind of becomes part of their, their self. Like it becomes part of their extended self, as Russell Belt calls it. So, um, and then that's why we're willing to pay more for it. And of course, at the same time, we're also more likely to buy it. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking of an incident recently where I, 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 um, I play ice hockey, or as they say in Canada, hockey. And um, I, I was at a hockey supply store and uh, they, I was looking at a new stick, right? Well, you can't actually take it out on the ice. There's no, you can't shoot, but they've got a little pad there, a little uh, hard plastic uh, pad, and you can take a puck and just sort of move it around a little bit. And I'll tell you, in my mind, as I was getting, just trying to get the feel of what it was like to maneuver this puck around this little plastic mat, and in my mind, I could, I could, I could, I was on the ice, right? I was skating down the ice and I was deking, and guys were like coming out of their shoes. They couldn't keep up with, I, for some reason, I was skating better when I was holding this uh, <laughs> stick. And, and the, the psychological emotion was so profound. What was interesting about that is I had no idea what the price of the stick was as I was doing it. But by the uh -huh. time I had had that sense of how good I was going to be once I owned this stick, I didn't care. It didn't matter to me. You could have told me, yeah, that stick is $12,000. And I would have said yes. So it's fascinating how that works. It was already part of you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, how much of what we're talking about when we look at uh, psychological ownership is just based on the emotion, the core emotion uh, that a, a customer feels? Because I, I know you've dealt a lot of this, those aspects of, of how emotion affects a consumer purchase decision. Yeah, um, yeah. So psychological ownership is really interesting because it kind of has has two aspects to it. There is an emotional aspect as well as we call it a cognitive aspect, you know, something you believe or think about. And uh, so uh, the emotional aspect is is related to this feeling that something becomes part of your extended self. And you often don't even realize that you have psychological ownership until somebody comes along and tries to claim ownership from you. <laughs> <laughs> then all of a sudden you're very aware yeah, of your feelings. Yeah. <laughs> So, so that emotion when I'm when I'm a, a consumer and I'm in that process, you know, th this is one of the things that uh, I I think Daniel Kahneman points out so well that uh, just so you know, on the buyer's mind, we have to have one Daniel Kahneman reference in every episode. Uh, but <laughs> Daniel Kahneman points out so well the idea is that that we're under this illusion that we really understand our decision-making process. And because so much of this is based out of the emotion and the emotion doesn't really have a mind to it, it's a it's a something that we experience more than think through. But do you think that uh, that consumers are, are, I mean, delusional sounds like a, a pejorative, but uh, they, they think that they're making a logical choice when in reality, it's far more emotional than most people give themselves credit for. Yes, absolutely. And uh, in some ways, to me, it's part of the joy of being human mm -hmm. that we're much complicated than a, uh, a simple mechanical decision making tool might, uh, might purport to, you know, conceive us. 
Thomas is. I love that take, though. Uh, that's that it's part of the joy of being human, right? People people do love to buy. They do love that that acquisition of something you know new and bright and shiny, and it's going to improve my life uh, in some way. And and you're right. The person who would make an entirely logical decision. Probably won't make a great decision in the first place, but surely they they won't enjoy it as much. As yes. you as you look at at how that emotion affects the uh, um, consumer purchase decision, are there anything that you've run across that say, well, this is something that was very interesting to me? Maybe something you learned about yourself in your own studies or about uh, other consumers to say, here's a way that the emotion moves the needle in ways that we probably did not understand. Well, um, most fascinating to me recently has been the work that I've done with Joanne Pack, who I mentioned, mm -hmm. and uh, and my other colleague Scott Swain. We've done some research on uh, consumers' territorial responses. Yeah. And uh, and I can tell you a personal story, and I don't know if this will be of interest to your listeners, but I'll tell you a personal story because this is exactly how uh, this research started. And I was shopping for a floor tile for my bathroom. We were redoing our bathroom, and I was in a tile store shopping in Briarcliff near where I, where I live. And I spent an hour in this store shopping for the perfect tile and trying to match colors and compare colors and sizes and shapes. And finally, I found the perfect tile and I picked up this sample piece of tile. I picked it up. It was this big, huge, heavy thing. I carried it up to the counter and I was waiting in line to check it out and bring it home on loan to see if it would work in my house. Mm -hmm. And so sitting there on the counter in front of me and I was imagining it in my house and all of a sudden the lady in line behind me reached out and put her hand on the tile and honestly I won't even uh admit how strong of a physiological reaction I had <laughs> even <laughs> I didn't say anything of course I tried to be more polite <laughs> but I was shocked and I was uh and I was shocked at my own response honestly I, uh, I felt a very strong emotional response. And I thought for the next three days, driving to and from work, I thought about this response and why I had this kind of gut, uh, really a gut response to her action of putting her hand uh, on the tile. It made no sense. I knew there were more samples in the back. I knew she wasn't going to steal my tile. Mm -hmm. it, no sense from a mental standpoint, a cognitive standpoint, but it certainly was an emotional uh, response. And so that really is how my research all started and uh, on territoriality. It just was, uh, uh, I just spent a lot of time diagnosing this and then talking to my colleagues, Joanne and Scott, and, uh, and we did a whole bunch of experiments to uh, kind of you know, take this apart and understand why it happened and when it will happen and what the outcomes are. Just to, to clarify here, is is ter the territorial response an extension of psychological ownership? Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. um, because if I had been in this tile store picking up the tile for my husband, if this had been his project <laughs> and I had just been stopping by or a friend and stopping by and picking up this tile for them, I would have had had the tile in front of me. And I am quite sure I would not have had much of a response at all if the lady behind me had put her hand on the tile. But this was my tile. I felt high psychological ownership of this tile. Mm -hmm. And that what triggered this emotional response. So we have shown in many, many experiments that 
uh, that if you elicit feelings of psychological ownership, feelings of ownership, that uh, if somebody else comes along and we've shown how this happens and somebody else comes along and they try to communicate ownership with, uh, uh, with using the same uh, mechanisms that trigger psychological ownership or elicit, and those are control, investment of self or intimate knowledge, and I'd be happy to explain that, but, uh, but if someone else uh, signals that they feel ownership of this product, like you know, touching the tile, moving a cup of coffee, telling you how much, how well they know something, how intimately they know a particular product, um, you, the consumer can can is likely to feel infringed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this feeling of infringement comes from the psychological ownership that they have, and has all kinds of not so good outcomes actually from a marketing standpoint, um, many of the outcomes are not really so positive. So from a sales standpoint, uh, it's kind of um, important to understand this actually from the standpoint of a salesperson, because very easy for a salesperson. We've shown in um, several of our studies, we've shown that salespeople can actually infringe on consumers without realizing it. You know, it's it, it's interesting. My my background is in real estate, uh, the real estate world, and especially in the new construction area. And uh, it's a it's a constant conflict between home builders and home buyers, because home builders, while they're building the home, they're looking at it and they're saying, uh, you know, this is this is our home, right? We are building it. Now, yeah, we're building it yeah, the yeah. way you asked us to, but it's still our home. And therefore, you can't go on the property and please don't tell us there was a broken window. We know there's a broken window. Don't tell us that there's a crooked board. We know there's, right? And there's this battle. Meanwhile, you've got um, the home buyer who's looking at it and saying, hey, you know what? Why, don't you, why, why did the contractor leave the Doritos wrapper and the empty soda can in there? And by the way, that board is uh, crooked. And uh, I had I, never really connected these dots, but it sounds like that's an example of a customer who truly does not own this product yet uh, as a transaction, but owns it psychologically and is now quite upset that the uh, that their product, it's not, it's, uh, we used to think about it and say, well, it's all about what the customer is going to feel about the home in the future, but it's not in the future. It's what they're feeling right now. <laughs> oh, that is the, it's a wonderful example. I just love it. Yes. It's a battle of ownership. You've, you've given a really, really great example. And actually homes, of course, are given, you know, the, the integral role they play in our lives and the huge investment they are for a consumer. Um, yeah, they, they would be uh, kind of targets of a great deal of psychological ownership. So I love that example. Yeah. This is really interesting because for you, you go through these experiences in your life and then you say, all right, I'm going to open up a research project uh, on that. <laughs> I go through these experiences and go, wow, what was that all about? So that's great. Uh, one other thing here, you, you use a really interesting term here um, that you type out narcissism in consumer behavior. It's interesting maybe because there's a term that's uh, normally uh, attributed to salespeople being narcissistic, but you're suggesting that there is a degree of narcissism in consumer behavior. Oh, yes. Uh, that's actually been really interesting also, because narcissists actually, their possessions are really important to them because they uh, people who are high in narcissism use their possessions to signal superiority to other people. And uh, so consumption and narcissism is a really fascinating um, 
area that we're just kind of really starting to explore. It hasn't really been well explored yet in consumer behavior. And um, so one of the things that we found uh, is that people who are high in narcissism believe, they believe innately, they believe that they're superior to others. Okay, that's kind of, you know, fundamental to the definition of a narcissist. And, but at the same time, they believe that others think that um, they are superior, more intelligent, more attractive, but also that they're more likely to own or feel psychological ownership for an attractive target. And so as a result, they get infringed more easily. So if there's, a, for example, we did an experiment where we uh, had, uh, we had customers, so consumers who were at a pizza stand, okay, and this was a very special pizza, and they felt a, a great deal of ownership for this uh, very special pizza. And a stranger came up and said to them, uh, oh, I know this pizza really well. I call it Antonio. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, you know, consumers that are low in narcissism were like, okay, this person's a little odd, eccentric, you know, but he was just telling me how much he likes the pizza. The people who are high in narcissism absolutely were off the scale in infringement and thought this person was out of his mind and hallucinating. And how could he feel ownership for my pizza? <laughs> yeah. But, but that's part of that though, is like, it, it just, it's like brand ownership, right? There's a psychological ownership to a brand that I might take. So if I tell you that when I'm in New York, there is a uh, falafel stand on 46th and 6th, just a few blocks up from the Bryant Park. And, uh, and you're going to get the best falafel in town from Moshe's falafel. And there's no question. Now, you're going to come back and say, are you kidding me? That No, 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 no. That's pedestrian. You want to go to this place over here. You and I are going to have a little battle. I assume that that battle is over our sense of psychological ownership, even over a brand. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And we're, yeah, we're looking at some new things too, some new ideas uh, um, regarding the, those kind of uh, signals that you're sending because, you know, I'm out of town. So, like, here you are, you're trying to claim ownership of something that I feel like I own. I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> so that makes it even worse. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it does. Here it is, the California guy is trying to tell you what a good falafel sandwich is going to be like. But I'm just telling you right now, Moshe's, it's a food truck on the corner of 46 and 6. They've never let me down. So there you go. There you go. So fascinating. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So fascinating. Hey, before we let you go, uh, we always do this. We're going to put you on the hot seat real quick. Uh, rapid fire questions, rapid fire answers uh, coming at you out of right field. Are you ready? Sure. Here we go. Your very first job was what? With Texas Instruments. I was an international product manager. Cool. Uh, when you were 10, you thought you would be what? I thought I would be an astronaut. I thought I would be the world's first female astronaut. Love it. Love it. Uh, the most beautiful place you've ever stood? Maybe I would say the top of the Beekman Tower on, on uh, this is really right off the bat, but uh, at um, 51st and 1st Avenue, where my now husband took me for our first date. That's um, great. On my first visit to him in New York City. <laughs> I have to tell you, that's only eight blocks away from a really good falafel stand. Never mind. We won't get it. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> uh, any book that you've read that's made a profound impact on your life? Well, I, you know, I mean, yeah, there's so many. I know, wow. I know, it's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I mean, I one that just comes right to to mind immediately is I just read it. Um, uh, is is the book Educated um, by Tara Westover? I think is her last name. Hmm. But it's uh, it's a fascinating story of a young woman 
who uh, who really had no education at all. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ended up getting her PhD from Cambridge. So very uh, very inspiring book. Love it. Last question: uh, the name of your first celebrity crush. Uh, first celebrity crush. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to be dating myself. Well, I, I could do it, too. I, 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 most people don't even remember uh, Elizabeth Montgomery on Bewitched when I answer this question. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to risk sounding totally nerdy, uh, but uh, but I'm going to say I'm a violinist and I'm going to say Yitzhak Perlman. That's awesome. That's the, that's one of the best <laughs> answers I've ever heard to that question. All right. You're off the hot seat. Great, great job. Uh, Dr. Colleen Kirk, that was really, really fantastic. Uh, and, and part of it, because um, it, it is such a fascinating, fascinating topic that you brought to us today. But I think the other part of it is you can hear the passion in your voice. And I just I, I resonate w- with that. I, I, I think we gravitate towards uh, people who are doing what they love and making a huge difference. That sounds to me like the definition of success. So uh, thank you so much for what you brought to us today. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's been really a pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. All right. Well, Murph, uh, boy, Colleen Kirk, uh, boy, she's right up our alley, right? That's the type of guest we love to have on The Buyer's Mind. Well, and to take something that is so uh, heady, uh, you know, things that we talk about as being written in white papers, that how do you even begin to understand it, that she brought it down to earth and made it understandable was fantastic. Absolutely. You know, I'm looking at it from the perspective of how do we get our customers to own something sooner? And then to be conscious of that, right? That's that's really what we're looking at. If it's if it's about psychological ownership, it's not about the moment that they say yes or or sign a contract or hand us our credit card. Uh, it, it's really about when they, in their mind, look at it and go, "Want, want, want. I want this. I want to own this." And then when they do that, there's that little jump that says, "You know what? I think I already do." Now it's interesting because. It may not be a conscious decision, but it's a non-conscious decision. And at that point, everything else is a formality. Oftentimes, the sale is made, or more specifically, the purchase is made long before the salesperson knows it. So a customer has already made an emotional commitment to a product, and everything that happens thereafter is something of a formality. So here's the question. How do you get your customer to own something sooner? and to be conscious of that. And I think the way that you do that is that you ask questions about their life more than about their product, but that directly relate to the product. So for example, if you're selling cars, you might consider this question, and and fair disclaimer, I've never sold cars before, but car sellers, if if you don't like it, then tweak it, but stay with the theme of where we're going here. What if I said, Tell me about your favorite weekend getaway spot. Where, where do you like to drive to on the weekends? Now, when I ask the question, I'm asking about their favorite weekend spot, but what am I doing? I'm placing the customer into their own future. And even while I'm on a test drive, I'm getting them to imagine driving this very car to that spot. So I'm connecting a strong emotion in the car with a strong emotion in my life. That's the idea. Now, look, if they don't have a strong emotion in the car, well, you're probably not getting the sale anyway. But if they do, I'm connecting it into something. And then what do I get? Psychological 
ownership. In my mind, I am seeing myself driving this car to my favorite place. Or if you're selling homes, a question like, where does the dog sleep? Where does the dog sleep? Now what's happening? I'm thinking about my dog, and let's face it, everybody loves their dog. I'm thinking about my dog, but now I'm thinking about my dog in this home. What happens? Psychological ownership. If I'm selling jewelry, I can ask the question, tell me your favorite upscale restaurant. And now what's happening? You go to an upscale restaurant, you're going to dress up, right? So what am I going to do when I dress up? I'm going to wear this jewelry to my favorite upscale restaurant. So the technique here is to take the best of the joy of your product and combine it with the best of their life. And you put those things together and it leads you to a sense of psychological ownership. Why? Because these are transporting questions. They take the customer into her future, into his future. So I'm going to suggest that you brainstorm this, that you spend a little time trying to figure out how do I get the right question about my customer's life that will help them to take the product that I'm selling and move it into that realm of psychological ownership. And then once you've thought about the right question, now ask, when's the right time to ask that? When's the perfect time in the presentation to ask that question? If we can combine these two things together, we increase the psychological ownership. We get that customer owning it even before they buy it. It's fun, it's enjoyable, it's connecting, it's relational, and at the end of the day, you know what I get to do. I get to change their world. Mm -hmm.